Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, like retail sales, has something for everybody. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the good doctor, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, mate. How are you? I am very good. Are you? I'm excellent. Why are you what, excellent? Yeah. I think it's a step up from normal. What makes you excellent this morning? Oh, I feel like uh, I'm $1.4 billion richer, but that's different. One point, you're buying lunch then? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I know the answer to this, but for our listeners, why are you $1.4 billion richer? Oh, it can be a secret. <laughs> they don't need to know. <laughs> you have to share it now. Come no, on. Come you can't drop it no, out there. It's, 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 it's suspense. There you go. All right, we'll keep it in suspense. Uh, <laughs> that is the most random tangent in the world. We've actually gone with something we're not going to explain. There you go. Welcome, fools. Thank you to, for joining us for our weekly podcast. Mate, um, we've got a lot to talk about this week. We've got retail sales. We've got the RBA. We've got Westpac in two separate stories. Google, of course, hits the news. And dear old Crown Casino, mate, it is who's was already being investigated, already questions being asked in an inquiry, and then Oztrack. Mate... <laughs> I don't want to be a crown director right now. That is a, that is a tough one to punch the company's having to go through. All right, mate, let's, without further ado, get straight into it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. Retail sales out this week. Um, let's start with the macro as we always do. It's it, it was one of those something for everyone kind of numbers. So for the month of September... Sales were down one and a half percent on the preceding month, i.e., August. So that's one in the in the bear box. In the bull box, it was still up on last September. In other words, retail sales are growing year on year, and the annual sta- sales. Start again. The annual rate of retail sales growth. Try saying that three times quickly. Is still five point two percent. So kind of one of those stories where depending on where you look, things are okay. And of course, Victoria, still the poor man of Australia, the, the sick man of Australia, if I put it that way. Um, obviously, they're still struggling down there. We desperately hope you guys are out of lockdown as quickly as possible. But that did drag the national numbers down meaningfully. And again, we you know you can't exclude that because that's real and it's part of the economy. And frankly, it has none of the issues for Victoria, but it also has flow-on impacts for the rest of the country. Less demand in Victoria means that you know manufacturers and wholesalers and retailers outside Victoria aren't necessarily getting the same business they otherwise would have. What do you make of the retail sales numbers? Um, so, um, yeah, I don't pay too much attention to those numbers. Um, I have a high-level take, right? That My high-level take is um, the, whether or not the numbers look good or not is almost immaterial. Okay. Right? And my high-level take is we're all in deep trouble anyway. <laughs> so, so it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the numbers can look whatever they want to look like. Um, you know, uh, bottom line is all the numbers right now are whatever numbers we see are juiced mm. up. Mm. Um, and they're in many ways fake. Yep. Right? So they're fake because we don't know what the real unemployment is. We don't know what the real state of the economy is. We... Um, what we basically know is, oh, there's a lot of stimulus and there's this mm-hmm. stimulus is doing different things. People are not doing their normal activities. They're doing, um, you know, different activities, right? So we're in sort of in a new environment, which is hard to tell what these numbers actually mean. Like right, in, right, in, right. My, in my view, numbers right now tell us nothing um, overall, right? I mean, it just, it just talks about local, it, it, I think it talks about short-term sentiment, mm. um, which is, more or less, I think, mm-hmm. over the long term, meaningless. So that that's my high level take on it. That's why I actually pay very little attention to those um, numbers. Plus, I don't invest in retail anyway. So right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So that's my very high level take on that. Nice. I, I I'm going to take a slightly different perspective. Maybe maybe the more optimistic perspective. I think you're right about the numbers being fake. Absolutely. I also think though that it is 
evidence that the stimulus is working. And as much as the stimulus is fake stimulus by definition, the alternative would have been without stimulus, things are much worse. And so to some degree, the money goes into the economy, it gets spent, it, it provides demand for jobs, all the, all the stuff that stimulus is supposed to do. This is absolutely fake in the sense that it's all it's all stimulus-based spending, but it, it is by definition working. And I think you know, if, if you believe in the stimulus approach, you do it because you want it to do exactly what it's doing and to hopefully give the economy enough of its own momentum. It's like, you know, you kind of, I'm thinking back in my head of my dad pushing me along on my bike, no, no training wheels, but holding the back and kind of running along with me just until I've got enough momentum and, and skill and confidence to kind of keep going on my own. Um, that's, my, that's my take on it. So I think to, to some degree, I actually agree with you in terms of it's exactly completely fake, but that's entirely what stimulus is supposed to do and, and where it's supposed to be taking us. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I, I think the I think the my issue right now is that I think there are fundamental, really big fundamental issues with the economy, mm. um, which I think, in my view, the stimulus is actually making it worse. Okay. That, yeah. So the stimulus is basically, uh, in many ways, right? It's like you can put a patient mm. on a you know on a heart lung machine mm-hmm. and keep them alive. Right. Right. And you can keep them alive for a long time and you get the sense of oh they're alive, maybe they're gonna get out. Mm-hmm. But actually they're not gonna get out. Right. And so it's basically pushing the can in many ways. I think right now what's happening is there's a bit of pushing the can down the road right. that's happening. Everyone is trying to, it's, this is not a specific, you know, everyone is trying to do that, mm-hmm. right? Whether it is um, the government or the bank and or, you know, and that's, that's happening globally. I think that mm-hmm. that is the bigger problem. Okay. I don't know how this is going to manifest itself in... Um, over the course of time, nothing manifests itself immediately, right? Mm. But how it's going to manifest itself, what is going to be the um, the downside of this? That's not actu- actually clear to me. Mm. Yeah. So if, if that's that's something I've been thinking about, is that you know there has to be some cost, um, and there has to be some repercussions, right, of kicking the can down the road in many mm. ways, right? Mm. So I, I, I think. What I see right now is a disconnect in terms of, yes, you are pushing, um, you're creating. So I think stopgap arrangements work well mm-hmm. for things that are going to come back. Stopgap arrangements don't work well for things that are not going to come back. Right, right? Right, right. So it's not really clear to me right now what's coming back, what's not coming back, what's mm-hmm. going to recover. Is mm-hmm. it just, you know, um, in, in many ways, what we know is that if we give people cash, mm-hmm. they'll spend it. Right, because our economy works that way. Mm. But what's not clear to me is that whether or not uh, there's going to be job creation um, for the long term. So that's mm. that's what I think. But you know, happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> I think. Well, I think that's the thing, right? I think that's we're, we're all trying to understand, you know, discern what's going on and where we're going. Uh, but we're all at least on the same page of hoping that the future is at least brighter than maybe the present, and certainly than than it has been in the past. Um, Speaking of that, mate, and speaking of what, you know, maybe maybe you might say, I think, this will be making problems worse in, in that category, or maybe not. The RBA, um, this is a so, – so the headline is, and, and I think it's probably right, uh, the RBA has given its clearest sign yet that it will cut rates. The commentary was really, really, really clear. Based on, look, we will do whatever it takes. We will cut rates. We will put more QE. We will buy more bonds. Um, you know, we want to keep the, the interest rates down now, the official cash rate and the three-year yield, bond yield. And that's, um, for those who don't want to get into the nuance of it, I don't blame you, but effectively you want to keep the longer-term 
lending cost down. So if you're taking a three-year fixed deal, you want that to be as low as possible if you want to try and, particularly for businesses, but also for consumers, if you want to try and you know maximize the the chances that people will borrow some money, if they know they can borrow it for three or four or five years rather than one and, and the rate's not variable, in theory, it's supposed to aid economic activity. Now, the RBA, now I say they're given the clearest signal yet, except two, three weeks ago, I think it was, I think we even talked about it on the podcast, the RBA kind of did the same thing and the markets assumed they built in a rate cut and then over the kind of preceding or the following two weeks, they kind of wound that back so like, oh, no, no, maybe it won't, ha- maybe it won't happen. This time the ABA has gone again with the same kind of language. I think it's clearer this time. I think it's more obvious this time the way they're talking about it. They were very clear about what they might do and what they might have to do. The fact they would do whatever it takes, the fact that rates are staying low for three years. If this is not if this is not a sign they're going to, I think we can probably give up on on trying to read anything into the RBA commentary. Do you have a Do you have a thought about that? Yeah, again, in a in a in a similar vein, my thought is well, <laughs> I've said this before. I think you know, um, the Reserve Bank Governor, I would have fired him a long time back. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, I, I think he has done a poor job. Right. Um, you know, so at this point, I think here's the deal. Mm. Okay, my deal is very simple. Um, Cutting the rates help, mm. except the question is, what does it help? Yeah. Right now, if you cut the rates and you enable borrowing by businesses, innovative businesses creating the twenty-first century jobs, mm, mm. yes, it helps. Mm. Right, um, it is not immediately obvious, but it does help. Mm. So, but if the rate cutting only fuels a property pyramid or fuels more borrowing, that is actually yeah. going to be spent unwisely. It actually does not help. Yeah. So I think long-term competitiveness is what is going to be compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I think about it. I, th- I think if you're going to cr- create um, asset price inflation, mm. then actually you're just breaking, basically b- digging a hole and then big, digging a bigger hole and mm-hmm. then digging an even bigger hole and then eventually you're just going to be buried in the hole. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to happen. Um, so I, I think that's my... My issue right now is that I think all of these strategies are just basically causing mm. asset price inflation. And it's good, you know, hey, <laughs> share prices are going up. That's that's fantastic. And um, But I, I think I'm not a huge fan of, uh, let me put it this way. I think RBA has very little choice of what it can do. So it clearly is not going to make decisions about... Um, about fiscal policy, industry oh, yeah. support, welfare yeah. payments, right? It, it, yeah. yeah, it's not making those decisions, so it, yeah. it's handicapped. So I understand that, but I think my issue right now is that it is handicapped, but it's only going to make mm-hmm. it's. This is an example would be that if you cut, um, so t- take uh, Australian property, right? It's mm-hmm. very expensive. It's one of the most expensive in the world, right? Um, it's basically unaffordable. Now, if it's not, if you only increase the effort, the unaffordability further mm. who does it help yeah, yeah. It, it it only it, it only prices out a bunch of other people who would otherwise get priced you know who could afford to buy things but you know basically pricing them out mm-hmm. um, so and you're not creating any other um, you know new types of jobs right so you're basically creating the same types of jobs I trying to hope that you know the same engine basically keeps spinning yeah, right, right? right so I again I don't know how where this is headed yeah. um, I don't have answers but you know those are sort of the questions that I would think mm, about mm, is mm. Um, what's happening yeah, I think that's right. I think that's. I, I, I actually agree with you. I, I I'm really torn on the RBA stuff because I think independent central banks are important. I think they are arguably necessary. Um, arguably, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be absolutely. You know, declare that unquestionably. But 
when you've got a situation where the RBA and the government seem to still not be pulling in the same direction in the same way, or at least with some sort of coordinated action, it makes it really hard, right? Like I can see, I can absolutely see the case for if you trusted, and this is probably the problem, if you trusted politicians enough and you believed that monetary policy, i.e. interest rates, was a core and should be a coordinated part of the overall policy setting, i.e. fiscal policy, that is tax and spend, and monetary policy, which interest rates are effectively two sides of the same coin or at least should be pushing in the same strategic direction, it makes sense for those to be controlled by one group of people or at least in some sort of coordinated fashion. And it really does seem, I mean, I, I, say, I can't complain about the stimulus, so the, the government's around the kitchen sink at this one, but it's clearly not enough. I mean, the, the central banks here and around the world are saying, thanks guys, but that's not enough. I've got to do more. I, uh, so I've got a couple of thoughts. The first is, I'll, I'll just read a bit from Matthew Cranston in the AFR because this is, this is kind of the, the summary, right? Um, economists believe that the RBA will take the form, sorry, the rate cut will take the form of multifaceted rate cut including the official cash rate to 0.1% and a declaration of intent about outright quantitative easing via large-scale bond purchases. I mean, you can't be clear on that. Now, may not happen, of course, as I said. There's still a chance that despite the RBA's very, very clear you know, messaging here, they won't go. And to some degree, they didn't go last month, so you kind of wonder what's changed. I don't know that much has changed. They worry about the official cash, sorry, worry about the exchange rate, apparently. Um, they worry about inflation. They worry about full employment. So it, it feels to me like, again, I know I've probably said this before, I'm sure I've said this before, but the RBA with their one lever, maybe two if you include QE, in other words, buying bonds, but they've got one or two levers, you know, they're, they're flying the, the biplane, the, the Wright Brothers biplane in 1915 or something. Um, the, the federal government flying either a jumbo or a, or a fighter jet, whichever whichever kind of analogy you prefer, with all the buttons, dials, you know, switches, um, options available to them. And, and the RBA, it's kind of like, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I absolutely worry about, I'm not super worried about the level of house prices. Well, I'd rather them be lower, but I'm not. I'm not as worried as you are. But I think the future question you you rightly pose is: I completely agree with you that without additional restrictions on irresponsible borrowing, you do wonder what this actually helps, or at least we know what it helps, but we won't worry about the the implications, right? The 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 multi potentially multi decade implications of how much you're borrowing now to buy a a house if house prices go up. You got to try and make that work, and I think if you're going to cut rates like this. For, to stimulate business activity in particular, which this seems to be about, fair enough. But you've got to find a way to do it in concert with other regulatory bodies, other 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 policies, to make sure you don't absolutely, as you say, create those perverse outcomes. Yeah, like you know, so house price. Okay, so house price actually by itself does not matter. Uh, by itself, the housing price could be whatever. I, I think it's just an example of bankruptcy of thought process, right? So I think um, the bankruptcy of thought process is very simple. In my mind. What is it that you a you know an industry somebody who wants to borrow somebody who wants to start a business mm-hmm. somebody who wants to build a factory that they can't build today that they're going to build That's when the rate is point zero one so yeah. so the so the answer to that is it's bankruptcy of ideas right right there is a total bankruptcy of ideas because everybody thinks they can make money of these other things mm-hmm. right. Um, and I think that's where the problem is. There is basically zero innovation happening because, well, you make money this other way, yep. right? And I think this is where the problem is. The problem is that, you know, mm. we've become a society of the pyramid builders or the house builders and mm. this mm. and that mm. instead of being innovative mm. because that's just too hard, yeah. right? And and I think that, so, syst- so systematically what we are doing is we are enabling. Um, it, it's, it, it's basically like, you know, if you're in a sugar high, 
the solution to that <laughs> is to not have more sugar, <laughs> right? So basically, right. Australia That's overall right. is yeah, on yeah, a yeah. on a sugar high, <laughs> and we're just giving it more sugar. This is just going to add badly, yeah, right? right? So uh, you know, that, that that's just you might take. I, I think you know the, it's mm, mm. again. Like I don't know what problem R- RBA is solving. As I said, like you yeah. know, I don't know which business. So it could. So here's the thing, right? It could be mm. that the RBA thinks that well, the banks are not lending, or lenders are not lending yeah, to people right. who want to start a business. That's right. But that's that's a policy problem. Yeah, agreed. Because today's rates are so low. If you wanted to start a business, you can't start it. Then there's a problem in the way the laws are structured. Yeah. Maybe the the bankruptcy laws. Maybe the um, the way the approvals are made. Maybe the way people evaluate businesses. Right. Mm. That's where the problem is. Yeah. It's not the rate. Yeah. The difference between borrowing at four percent and one percent is massive. Yes. The difference between borrowing at zero point two five and zero point one is. I'll be a little bit flippant, but it's not miles away from just simply a rounding error. If you can't, yeah. if you can't find a project that you can afford to borrow, let's call it a million dollars, make my life easy. If you can't borrow a million dollars at 0.25, but you will borrow it at 0.1, or that somehow changes your spending or investment behavior, um, I, I don't know. Like I don't, I, you and I have different visions. I don't blame the RBA because they, they're in the biplane and they've got to do something. So they're trying to do something because they see that if they don't do something, even even marginal. It'll have implications down the road, right? Oh, so I'm less critical than you, but I think the broad idea that that it's it's going to have even more than a, a tiny, tiny marginal impact at that point, at least at least with otherwise, if, okay, if you've got to buy bonds and buy bonds, if you've got to make borrowing easier, make borrowing easier, but changing just the rate without governments and, and regulators working together to fix the underlying problems that you've identified is exactly the problem. Well, if I'm, if I'm the RBA governor and I take a mm. million dollars of salary, I would absolutely play poker with the government and say, I'm not <laughs> moving. You know what? I'm going to move the rates up. <laughs> I want to see what you're going to do. Fire me. Like, I mean, come on. I think they would. Uh, I think they would. And that would be fine. <laughs> that would be a statement. And then I can go and give a statement on the, in the newspaper saying, well, you know, hey, <laughs> it does not make sense to cut rates. So, I'll, you know, I'll give an example. Um, so, um, you know, I made an investment to a project where um, something is being built, yep, right? Yep. And the bank, because of COVID, yep. decided they can't loan. Right. You know, so this is an example of where um, it's not a, it's not an issue about rates anymore, right? It's yep. an issue about yeah, yeah. the culture yep. of lending and the you know the how you evaluate businesses and you know again the bank might yeah, have you know yeah. made the right decision, but I think uh, this this is an example. This is illustrative of what the bank thinks is okay. The bank yeah. would lend two million dollars for a, a, a property mortgage yeah. because that is deemed to be okay, right? Right. right? But that doesn't create jobs, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think that, that's that's the issue. I think my yeah. fundamental issue is um, we are we are addressing uh, problems. We are addressing the sugar addiction with sugar with more sugar. <laughs> right. um, How do you stop a hangover? If you just keep drinking. Yeah. Right? Well, just you know, if you're drunk, just just keep drinking. Just keep drinking until well, until you pass out. <laughs> so that's what's happening uh, right now. So um, I'm, I'm a bit saddened. By you know, I don't uh, yeah, by mm. by the approach and mm. the style and the um, yeah. the lack of awareness. I think that yeah. um, you know you really need to pick up and do other things. Otherwise, like there's going to be a time when nobody's going to be interested in uh, mining. What do yeah. we do then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I think it's a, it's a it's a big problem. I think we you know again as I said you and I have slightly different perspectives, but the the problems and the potential solution that we're reasonably clear on that and, and rates lower rates. If, if, if low rates are the answer because the rest of policy is so ineffective, then that's the problem. If low rates aren't the answer, then again, we've got the same problem. It, it seems like, you know, I've got to say, it frustrates the hell out of me. I mean, you, you and I do it, right? We talk about the RBA all the time. The the, the financial media, and I'll, it's a grab bag term and it's not everybody, but 
when we we write columns and columns and columns and inches and inches and inches on the RBA, and no one's actually you know as if as if the RBA is the only thing that matters to economic policy and recovery, and we give a relative you know carte blanche to the rest of policy you know we're looking at the one percent here and ignoring the 99 percent of stuff that happens elsewhere and saying let's talk about the rba and what they should do on rates again it's it happens on twitter it's and again from really smart simple people actually quite like this this slavish kind of it's almost pavlovian response to to hey what are the rba doing what are they doing what's this going to matter and it's like yeah okay that's the right question i suppose but only in context one percent of the question should be what's the rba doing the other 99 percent has got to be hey have we got a bigger problem here i got i mean my my Think about down the track. Let's say this works, but in three years' time, rates are still zero, and we have another economic imp. You, you can't keep cutting rates, and then you—I mean, you can you make them negative, and then further negative, and more negative, and more negative, and you buy more bonds and more bonds and more bonds, and effectively, this has to lead if we don't get it back on track to de facto nationalisation of of the economy. Like there is no other alternative if this is if this is the only path we can go on and can't get back to some sort of normalcy. I, I, you know, it goes in one direction. There's no firepower left already. What happens next time? We asked that after the GFC, and the answer was, let's go to zero and let's do QE. Fine. Next time, in 2025 or seven or 34 or whatever it is, unless we get back to some sort of normalcy, I don't know what tools are left for policymakers, certainly monetary policy, to actually respond to it. Yeah, I don't have any... I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a relative game, right? I mean, um, yeah. I mean, the one effect that can happen is debasement of the currency, right? So yeah. the currency could be completely debased which is what they're trying to do ironically with and that's part of the RBA saying was look other countries have done this so much we have to keep up to keep our currency from being too high I mean it's it's crazy it's self self mutually assured destruction financially yeah so it's it's debasement of the currency is Mm. uh, I think part of the game although again I think it's 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 a trade off between you know you want to be competitive with your exports Mm. right but I want to be careful if your exports are raw material you don't really have a competitive advantage yeah. over the long term. Right, right, right. You actually have a deteriorating competitive advantage yes. over the long term. The, the best you've got is you can get it out <laughs> cheaper than somebody else. Yeah. But the deeper the hole gets, the worse that problem gets. Yeah, worse. It is. So I think, I, I it, to me, it seems like there are some long term issues here that are just building that are not being addressed. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not really the RBS fault. You know, part part of this is, I think, um, these are policy questions mm-hmm. that require. Um, you know, uh, like de- decade-long leadership yeah, thinking, yeah. right? And if we elect people for three years where they're just going to do policy for one year and then two years planning <laughs> yeah, to get re-elected, re-election, exactly. well, yeah, yeah. it's really hard to... <laughs> so we, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, we, we, are, we are kind of out of luck there. So Yeah, I know what you do. I'm, um, I, I got last comment quickly. I think the problem is to some degree too, this is an international issue that we're not even close to resolving economically. You know, yes, we can be slightly better or slightly worse than our competitors. And, and frankly... At a policy level, at a national level, it's the government's job to kind of make us slightly better than everybody else so we can get we'll be slightly better off. That's what national governments do and have always done. That's what's behind the, the, the US-China trade wars is both countries trying to make themselves a little bit better at the expense of the other one. That's how these things happen. The broad question of, it's not if it's just the RBA with this policy problem or, or the Chinese government with this policy problem, there might be some better options. But man, like around the world, interest rates are zero. Around the world, GDP growth is hard to come by. Around the world, QE is out of control. You know, the RBA can't, and the government can't resolve it for and by themselves. 
because the you know getting us out of this hole and back to some sort of normalcy is an international issue. Even if we were the best in the world, that would be slightly better than the rest. But if if the world doesn't sort this out, whatever we know full well, we're, we're globally exposed. Whatever implications are going to hit us at the same time. Yeah, like my my last comment about that one is, mm. I, I think there are two different issues here. So one is. Um, one is sort of you know uh, more even distribution of wealth right that is a different mm-hmm. problem i think that this does not address mm-hmm. however okay. i do think um that what's happening right now is low rates are actually making competitive uh, innovative and competitive countries further more innovative and competitive because right, there okay. are these companies that can do things that they would otherwise find it harder to do right. so so the gap is widening and they, entirely the the us china trade war is is not about trade but it's all about basically competitive edge okay. Who, who's going to edge out whom in terms <laughs> of you know and it's really all about competitive edge you know it's having edge on silicon having edge on you know ai having edge on other things right yeah. so i think in many ways actually actually the lower the rate mm. <laughs> it is actually helping um, certain countries certain economies over uh, over others and it's just right. making the the gap wider and that's different um, you know from economic distribution of wealth yeah agreed agreed let's I was going to say let's move on to better things I'm not sure we can let's see how we go Motley Fool Money Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's go to Westpac. <laughs> for our Westpac. Speaking of, speaking of um, well, reactions, changes, uh, new worlds, trying to deal with, with what's going on, um, Westpac is probably doing what we all assume might happen, but yet it's something of a notable... And, and probably, I don't want to overplay this, but but it may well be the first domino. And and not it's not this is not about lending. This is not about banks. It's not even about branches. This is about the corporate responses effectively to COVID and what the future might look like, both for the companies themselves, for us as employees, and for the broader economy. Westpac is actually choosing to downsize its new office in Barangaroo, which for those in Sydney and those out of Sydney is the Harborside development that uh, Cram Casinos, we'll talk about them in a minute, uh, we're going to be the kind of key anchor tenant, the you know six-star casino at the top of that. Um, Barangaroo was this new kind of urban development, lots of you know prime real estate, uh, the, the best businesses wanted to be seen there and get their naming rights on the buildings, all that kind of good stuff. And yet Westpac has made the decision to effectively say, you know what, we are going to be smaller as a, as a head office. <coughs> Excuse me than we would have been pre-COVID. And I think that's meaningful. You, you, you were the one who said, to want to, look, I want to chat about this because it has impacts for everybody. It's got impacts for employees and, and for Westpac, as I said. The bigger impact though, probably, at least the more direct and maybe you know um, proportional impact, the largest one may well be on those property trusts, the REITs, the real estate investment trusts that own these office buildings. Yeah, I, I thought this news is really interesting because a, uh, uh, you know, I would not expect Westpac to be the one sort of making the move, or maybe others are making yeah, a move, right. and Westpac yeah. is is in the news because it's a big one, right? Yeah, yeah. But it it is really symptomatic of mm, if this mm. trend is long term, right? Mm. If this trend is long term, it basically means that you're going to have much smaller. Uh, city centers, right? Right. That in turn means that you have all these big office buildings that are now worth much significantly less because yep. you can't fill them up. Yep. But it has flow-on effects. Um, you know, uh, we've we've got basically a, a train system, for example, in Sydney that mm-hmm. is bringing people into the city. Right. Well, you don't need to bring so many people into the city anymore. Right. Right. Um, and and therefore, by by definition, the cafes, the you know, the the things that open for lunch. 
you know, yeah. you know, and people then have the choice of actually living further away. And this has been huge, right? Because when, when there has been the, the recovery that we've had, again, we, we, maybe fake recovery, maybe not, but in any case, the recovery that we've had has largely been suburban. If you go through the city or even talk to, I, I talk to cafe owners regularly. I do a, a Sunday morning spot and I drive into Martin Place in the middle of the Sydney and and I speak to the cafe owners around there when I grab a coffee before, before I'm on and they have to a, to a person thus far said, well, look, it's getting a little bit better, maybe a bit earlier in the week because some people are working a bit part-time or a few days a week in the office. And that's Monday to Wednesday is kind of improving, but Thursday and Friday are still terrible. The weekends are still terrible. It, it's, it, it, is, it does seem like a suburban and maybe an online recovery, but the CBDs feel like the, the areas that are really dragging their feet. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and uh, you know, and 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 more and more companies you hear like global companies that are making these decisions that okay, you can work forever from home, um, yeah. you know, you don't have to come in, you can work from anywhere you want, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that has a that's in a way in in in, in interesting way it's good, and in an interesting way it's bad, right? <laughs> yeah. It's good because it yeah. makes hiring talent. Um, um, easy, yep. right? It yep. means a business can be formed anywhere. It doesn't yep. have to be in the in this in the city center, right? Somebody could you know start one in mm, Mitigal, mm, right? Mm. If they wanted to, and it it could equally be successful because yep. the expectation that you have an office in 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 the center of the city is no longer there, right? right? right this is a big right. deal, yeah. In, in that sense, um, but it does have those. You know, if we have spent so much energy, effort, time, um, <laughs> uh, uh, and this is not just about. Australia, this is mm. worldwide. Yeah, like totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big cities, which yeah. are the attraction points. Yeah. Like, you know, think about New York. Um, the people come mm. to see mm. because, they're, mm. hey, mm. there's big city centers, right? right I right. mean... Um, and this is fascinating, mate, because I, I've been reading and listening to pod, different podcasts for years. And one of the one of the kind of... Freakonomics, which is a great podcast. I was looking for another one. They interviewed a bloke ages ago uh, talking about the value of cities. And... The, the idea, he, he makes the claim, and it's probably a little bit outlandish, but but stay with us. Um, he makes the claim that cities are more responsible than almost anything else in human history for the progress that we've made because of the way they bring people and ideas and money and whatever else together. And, and the kind of, the if you look at the wage growth in the CBDs versus the suburbs, for example, or the regional towns and cities, so the, particularly not so much in Australia, we don't have that many, we're pretty coastal, nothing's really in between. But, um, you know, the, the so-called flyover states in the US, for example, where wages and prices haven't kept up because talent has migrated to those places. Um, I think this is the real challenge for us as, as an economy. On one hand, the Zooms of the world and the Skypes and the whatever else is Microsoft Teams and whatever else we're using and phone calls and just the reality that, by the way, bosses can actually let go a little bit of their employees so they used to kind of, you know, watch Blackhawks. Um, you know, these things can let us do our jobs and they absolutely do give us more connectivity than if we only had a phone to, to call. You know, if you and I had to do this over a phone call, we never saw each other, uh, we never used Zoom, that maybe it'd be a different relationship that you and I have, for example. But there's also less incidental exposure and I think... That's where the question is going to be, I think, resolved over the next few years is, you know, yes, we can do our current jobs from home, but what does it mean for innovation? What does it mean for interaction? Um, you know, the guy I might have coffee with or the casual introduction or the chat over the literal water cooler. We have a virtual water cooler channel where we kind of, you know, occasionally share ideas and talk rubbish. Um, but but I'm absolutely sure that we have less casual interaction as a business being remote than we were in, in a group. And maybe, is that true for cities itself? Are you, are you hopeful that we can replicate and maybe even, you know, surpass that? Or is this also kind of part silver lining, but, but genuinely part cloud? Yeah, I really don't know. Like, I mean, those are really good points. Um, the, like one of the beauties of, of certain places happens to be the culture of that place, right? right? right. 
um, you know, so like, the, so Berlin, for example, is known as like the the, the valley of um, um, Europe, right? Okay. Right? Silicon so, Valley, you mean? Yeah, Silicon Valley yeah, of the Europe. Yeah. But if if Berlin is Silicon Valley of Europe, yeah. there is a reason why Berlin is that, right? right and, and whatever right, is right. the reason. Yeah. I mean, if you take people and you make them remote, how does that work? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, you know. So, it, it, in one hand, it does mean opportunity, mm-hmm. right? As I said, you know, you can have a, you can have this happening now. In it doesn't have to be city center. It can happen in Mittagong, yeah. um, uh, out in the south. Great right? part of the world, by the way. Yeah, and and but <laughs> sun's but, been out today. No, but what does it mean? I, I yeah. really don't know. So, I mean, yeah. there is a plus and a minus to this, um, like almost point. like everything. So. I, I heard someone say that it, working out is great for getting projects done but it's tough for starting new projects. And that seems about right to me. Mm-hmm. The idea of kind of the brainstorm, the sit around a room, the back and forth, let's catch up again after lunch, or let's go and have lunch and talk about something. Mm. Um, I, I'm a big fan of remote. We've worked remote since we started the Multifill here in Australia. So we're now coming close, to, actually really close to um, to 10 years in Australia. Um, beginning January, January 1, 2011, our site went live. So we're getting super close. Um, and we've done it perfectly well. By the same token, we're relatively independent workers as individuals and as you know, structurally, functionally. Um, we do have a small office actually on the Gold Coast where we have our marketing and operations team get together and that has been useful for them. Um, so I, I would I would imagine the, the future is a bit hybrid. If I, was a, if I was a betting man, I'd say some combination of, you know, work from home is the default, but let's get together every X often or for specific projects or tasks where one day a week, one day a fortnight, three times a month, you might go and see each other probably in a co-working space or maybe in a big, you know, meeting room type space that, that a Westpac might have, for example, where there are no permanent seats. There's just places you can go and meet and kind of catch up. If I was a betting man, I think that's what the future might look like. I do worry a little bit about, as you say, the, the Berlin example, even the Valley itself, the idea that can you get the right talent? Can you have the right ideas? Do you have those casual, you know, how many how many businesses do we know? The co-founders were like, oh, I, you know, I was going to start this business. I talked to a friend and they introduced me to another friend of theirs who had similar skills or, or was thinking the same thing. I do worry about the the kind of the innovation spark in, in, a, in a remote world. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, and maybe we still have offices, just smaller offices, right? I think, mm. you know, maybe that's what it is. Um, again, this, has, this is going to play out over the next year. Yeah, well. Half a decade, does it, maybe. Does it change how you, have you thought? I mean, this is evolving, right? But but does it change how you think about investing or companies or innovation or as an investor has it has it started to percolate its way through your process? Well, like in terms of investing, like you know, one of the things that I I, I think is important in investing is just being flexible, right? So you, you, you know, nothing is permanent in investing, and mm-hmm. flexibility is really key. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. businesses that are willing to make changes quickly mm. in response to situations uh, sort of like them so you know um, and businesses that are slow to make changes again I don't like them because that yeah, basically right. means that you can fall behind so that's sort of the only thing but you know yeah, um, yeah other than that like you know, there are like there are some grand announcements people make. Okay, everybody can work from like you know. I think Twitter made an announcement yes, that everybody can work from Shopify. I think did as well. Square, yeah. obviously, so, run by the same bloke as Twitter. Yeah, so like I mean, those sort of things they sound great, mm-hmm. um, and it shows that you're agile, which is mm-hmm. is a positive take, um, yeah. which is better than not being agile. Correct, but that's right. If you had to choose, but yeah, but that that's you know that's yeah. what I sort of draw the distinction. So if I have to choose, I'll choose in the agile mm-hmm. bucket versus the non-agile bucket. Mm-hmm. But then you need to look at other things. I like that. I um yeah, it's something to keep in mind. I think it's you know as you rightly point out, it makes technology and innovation, disruption, agility, as you say, far far more important, right? Because the less structurally kind of um, supported innovation is, the businesses are 
the more it requires on the people and, and what's being done. I, I, for me personally, I'll say it, it, it makes me think more about the individuals in an organization and really thinking about, you know, backing not sure individual jockeys um, to use the to use the analogy, but just the sense that absent some of that structure, some of the structural things that keep businesses going and make them successful, almost that kind of momentum slash inertia that just keeps them moving forward almost regardless. When you start to strip away some of the things that deliver those in, you know, built-in advantages. Um, if you are in the Valley, if you are Westpac, if you are, you know, th- these businesses have their own drawing power for different reasons for different people. You start to strip a little bit of that away and it really does make you think, well, innovation may be faster, it might be different, it might be, frankly, that's expected, right? More unexpected, just the people who are actually running the business who can have that impact on a daily, weekly, monthly basis and then who might leave um, or join somewhere else are, are far more useful. Mate, let's, um, let's move, let's stay with Westpac actually, but let's, and speaking of innovation, by the way, Let's do our regular segment on buy now, pay later. It seems like every every week there's a new bit of news. And this one is, I've got to say, fascinating to me. I, I, I imagine you've got a similar a similar perspective or a similar view anyway, maybe a different view, but an but a interest in this. Westpac has done a deal with Afterpay, or Afterpay has done a deal with Westpac, to me, which we able to look at it, for Westpac to provide some retail banking services for Afterpay's customers. And specifically, and correct me if I'm wrong, mate, because you're closer than I am, but a, a savings account for consumers and some cash flow management services slash functions. I haven't been super clear on the company's been super clear on what those are necessarily, but being both being powered by Westpac. Now, I really like this because I think I have, uh, you, you and I mentioned this before, and I don't have a strong view on this, but I think if I was going to highlight Afterpay's biggest risks, it would be that they get disintermediated themselves, that banks or credit card companies start providing those afterpay-like services and simply remove the need for the middleman, right? If you if you can use your, your Visa card, so Zip's done a deal, for example, where you, use your, you can use your Visa card and it automatically fractionalizes it for you. It's tap and zip, I think they're calling it, but that kind of idea of, you know, it just becomes such a such a fundamental part of every transaction that there's no need for an afterpay. So I think that's, if I was going to put down a, a concern or a, or a risk, that'd be near the top of my list. And again, feel free to disabuse me of the notion. But what I like about this deal for afterpay's perspective is they are maybe responding to that, maybe just doing it anyway and it just happened to coincide. But getting into retail banking deepens the relationship firstly. So if I'm an afterpay customer and I pay, I can be an afterpay customer when I save or when I receive money from my, my employer or when I transfer money to or from my friends. So that, that helps. If I'm an afterpay retailer, They'll help me manage my cash flow, and that sort of seems to make sense as long as the, the idea is attractive enough. And I have to say a little bit like you talked about Square and PayPal before in this context, I think on the podcast, um, and so I'm stealing your idea to some degree. Um, assuming you agree that it's, it makes sense here, Afterpay can actually keep potentially more money inside its own ecosystem without ever actually sending it to someone else. If I if I'm an Afterpay customer and you're an Afterpay business. I can use my Afterpay savings account to pay you as an Afterpay retailer, which goes to your Afterpay cash flow management system. Um, there's a lot more touch points. It gets to keep a lot more of the flow of that cash potentially, even though the deal is with Westpac rather than doing it itself. But it's just deepening the relationship and kind of you know almost ring fencing some of those transactions both feel like smart ways to build some more of Fortress Afterpay. Yeah, so I really like this, again, for all those reasons that you, you mentioned. And... Um, I don't know the details yet of mm. what exactly this looks like. It's a little like. vague. It's, so a bit, it's a bit vague. Um, it's smart, it, though, I think. It's very smart. And, you know, again, Afterpay is not really getting a banking license here, right? It's, mm. you know, yeah. like maybe yeah, this yeah, is the first yeah. step towards getting a banking license. That's what I wanted. Right? It's yeah. first step, yeah. you know, baby step towards getting a banking li- yeah. license, which I think would be fascinating. I, my, you know, if Afterpay has to be five times the size or 10 times the size yeah. of what it is today, yep. That would almost seem like a natural progression, right? Getting a banking license, actually mm-hmm. becoming a 
new age bank that yeah. operates with a very different model than the current banks do, yeah. right? Um, but again, uh, you know, full credit to Westpac and Afterpay for sort of, you know, thinking about this and mm-hmm. uh, making a deal. Uh, again, I think it's fascinating. It's sort of similar to what, you know, Square has got a banking yeah. license now. Yeah. Um, so has got to, don't they? Like it, I mean, it's I know probably it has regulatory dramas and I know that probably puts them closer towards credit code compliance and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if you think about... Actually, Square's got one over there. Even we talked to Superhero last week and, and the idea of they've, they've, I mean, even listening to what they've done, frankly, the number of hoops they've had to jump or whatever, but in doing so, they don't become the, the, the fly-by-night guys who happen to be cheap. They are literally saying, look, we have done everything we need to do. And this is not an endorsement, by the way, but we've done everything we need to do. We've, we've done this this guide, this regulatory rule. We've had PwC come and audit our stuff. We've got two-factor authentication over here. Those kind of ideas, they really do, you know, it's, it, it's, it's hard to do. But once you've done them, it really gives you some credibility and some some ability to actually fight back against the others and say, well, we are this, we are, you know, we have this license. It makes more sense for us as a business. We can keep more of the value of the transaction rather than having to palm it off because we've done the work to to set that up. Are they playing Westpac as, as patsies, do you think? Or is there some future deal that makes them part of the same business? Or how, how does this how does it roll I, out? I really don't know. Like, I mean, the one thing that I, like, I I, I really think that the, the Afterpay team, though, hmm. is... It's a fascinating team. It's a fascinating yeah. team because they, they really, I think the way they're operating, I call it bringing the valley style approach, Ooh, okay. the valley style mentality. And how would you characterize that in Afterpay's context? Well, like, I mean, you know, the, the way they're just, the, like a lot of these things that they're doing, right? You know, it, it almost seems like they have a business plan where they're written up. <laughs> this is what's going to happen, what the five-year plan is going to look like. Yeah, right. And we're just going to execute it step by step. Even the simple things like the way they organize their conference calls, it's so nicely done. I, okay. I mean, the more I look at this company, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed yeah, by yeah. their ability to execute, their ability to connect with customers. These are, these are things that I don't generally expect um, right, right. when I look at a company, right? But their ability to to connect with consumers, like, you know, so the ability to pr- provide a product mm. that your consumers love, mm. that's really mm. hard. And yeah, very right. few companies actually crack that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very few companies crack that. And Afterpay has actually cracked it. They provide a product mm. that the consumers, you know, their users want, right? Yeah, For whatever yeah, reason, yeah, yeah, but yeah. they do. Um, uh, and, and then, you know, they sort of are building... Um, a small ecosystem around that product, around the core product. This yeah. is this is very very smart. So I, I really like um, <laughs> uh, their execution. I really like how they've you know and and also the other thing I really like about this company is that they are um, they think big, yeah, okay. right. And if you think small, you're never going to be big, yeah, right. Yeah. Yes, thinking big can result in failure, yeah, right. but it's much better to fail <laughs> yeah, thinking yeah. big yeah, yeah, yeah. than to never think big right, and just right, play. Right. You know, so it's like if you want to play a World Cup cricket, you yeah. you know, and if you go, you know, and if, but if you think that I'm going to play county cricket and that's enough, yeah, then you're only yeah. going to play county cricket and that's right, it, right? Yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. So these guys are you playing just enough to, to get good at county cricket. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So these guys are playing the World Cup, and I just you know I salute them for <laughs> trying to play the World Cup and actually nice. being really good at that. So nice, yeah, yeah I, I really like this. It's um I, I like that. Yeah, it's the old line. It's a it's a bit, it's a bit trite a bit cliched but it's the old you know shoot for the if you shoot for the star sorry if you shoot for the moon at least you'll land among the stars that idea of if you try and because you could crash and burn on the launch pad right that's that's yeah. the risk as you rightly said but right. um you, you can't you can't or the other one i like is you can't cross a chasm in two short jumps yes yeah, you've, got, you've got to go the whole way yeah. and, and you may not make it 
Um, but you're absolutely not going to make it if you if you don't try the whole the whole big jump in one go. Which yeah, if you do, if you didn't try, then the answer is that you're not going to make it. Right, we exactly, know that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so so yeah, and full credit to Afterpay. Um, you know, for you know, it's it's mm-hmm. rare, right? How many times have you found um, an Australian company that's actually mm-hmm. created a category yeah. that oh, hundreds awesome, of other hundreds yeah, yeah, of other yeah, companies yeah. want to copy? Super cool. Which you are able to then take yeah. uh, overseas yeah. and expand yeah. and yeah. expand your market share while even trying to think about okay let's become slightly like a bank right yeah. i think that that is commendable and i commend them when they do that so yeah uh, again as i said I've, i like i like afterpay for their execution and what they're doing i will i will never forget and and to much to my chagrin because i still don't own afterpay shares um the, the the their sales deck the sales pitch deck was really 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 smart it was one of those things that seems stupidly simple and the tech behind it's hard right so i'm not, I'm not saying it's, it was easy to do but to your point about the connection piece, the bit about taking the taking the tech and turning it into a into a product, um, they they simply said to their retailers, "Look, you will pay us for this, but here's the case studies of where we've introduced this whole new concept, and look at what it's done for the sales of these retailers." Yeah. And it was simply a matter, and I don't know the numbers. It was something like 40 percent more sales on average, or something like that, because you gave them this payment option. And as a retailer, it was such a stupidly obvious thing. Well, okay, I've got to pay my five percent, but I'm going to get forty percent more sales. Why would I not do this? In other words, the, the the friction of accepting it and the upside was so tiny, it made no sense not to do it. And on the flip side, for consumers, again, it's a no-brainer. It's a cost-free way to pay later. I mean, you know, you don't get something for nothing very often in this world, and that was a simple something for nothing solution. So again, I, I completely concur that the, the business they built, but the way they sold it, particularly to their retail partners, was just. And again, it's, it's obvious, right? Of course, you would say, well, you can make more sales and make you more money, but it actually did, and it was. Very, very smart of them to do that. And again, it was one of those network effect businesses. The more retailers you have, the more consumers will want to sign up. The more consumers who sign up, the more retailers need it to the point where you can't not have Afterpay anymore. They've literally locked themselves in by sheer consumer demand they've created. It's a, it's a really, really smart growth strategy they pursued and they're definitely getting the benefit of it now. Yeah, no, really cool. At the same time, Westpac sold or is going to sell their stake in Zip. Or Zip Pay, uh, Zip Co is the name of the company. Zip Pay, the product, largely a um, couple of products they've got. The the company was Westpac was very keen to say no, no, no. It's not nothing to do with our deal with Afterpay. We're just selling it because it makes sense. Uh, we still want to work with Zip. We still want to be integrated with Zip. We still want to do the right thing. We still want to be part of this growth story. You know, BNPL player agnostic. <laughs> they don't really care who wins. They want to be part of it. Make sure they can they can clip some of the ticket on the way through. Makes some sense. Um, this is a pretty good deal. You don't very often. You know, associate large, established, blue chip, and and we'll put in brackets slow, steady, and boring, and not very interesting Australian companies um, with these sort of investments. They invested something like, and I, I'll, I'll fudge the numbers, about forty five, fifty million dollars in Zip. They're going to sell a stake worth about three hundred and thirty four, three hundred thirty nine million dollars. That's a pretty good return for for you know Telstra's tried to have this VC arm. Westpac's got its own VC arm. Ironically, this deal wasn't actually done as part of that VC arm. Westpac did it directly, so you can make of that what you will. Um, it's not very often a, a a large Australian kind of incumbent gets a gets a slice of a flyer like Zip, and and they're cashing out. Do you believe them? Are they are they cashing out because of the afterpay deal, or is it just happened to be on the same day, and they're just using the opportunity to announce both at the same time? I'm just going to say congratulations to Westpac for uh, <laughs> making. You don't say that very often. You know, for, well, when you when know. Australian bank gets a, gets congratulations from you, this is a red letter day. It's a, like right, well, look, I mean, you know, how many like making that, you know, what's a five six bag or whatever yeah. they're making, right? That's that's awesome. Especially for again, 
of all the people who would have made this deal, you wouldn't have picked one of the top four Australian banks. Well, well here's the thing, right? And if, if they had picked it, I would have thought they would sell it on a double. They have actually right, held right, it this right, long. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a smart. Like, here's the, uh, the way I justify it is that, especially given that they're VC, they would, you know, first they're not supposed to be in the uh, business of being in VC. Right. But they're right. a bank, mostly a retail bank. I don't expect them to behave like VCs, but okay, you got mm. one right. Mm. You made a lot of money. <laughs> you want to get out. It's all yeah. good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't read too much into it. I think that you know they're going to get some money back. Uh, yeah. yeah, I like it. It's um, it, it makes perfect sense, mate. Let's move on to a slightly controversial topic, only because it involves a couple of tech companies that you and I have different perspectives on, or at least different ownership of. Uh, but let's try and do it with uh, with, with a bit of a bit of uh, well, as unbiased as we can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. This week, the U.S. Department of Justice has opened an antitrust suit. Now, um, that's a very specific U.S. term. It basically is a um, abuse of market power suit, let's call it that, uh, against Google, saying that, or at least alleging that Google is misusing the market power it has to advantage itself and disadvantage its competitors. And I think this is the first big one. Is the first big one since Microsoft? Have I missed one in between in the US? No, I think that's right. The first. Big so ones. Microsoft was taken to the through the ringer by both the European and the Americans for their Internet Explorer browser when they basically managed to inadvertently, they would say, and I won't make any allegations here, uh, kill off Netscape Navigator, which for those who've been around for a bit on the internet will remember way back in the day, Internet Explorer became the dominant browser because it was shipped with Windows. And the allegations were that Microsoft was misusing its market power by effectively producing and, and including um, a, a competitor, which, or sorry, a, a competitor in Netscape, which effectively had the impact of really damaging Netscape's business. I think in the event, that kind of is what tend to happen. Although, ironically, the winner in the browser wars thus far has actually been Chrome uh, from Google rather, rather than Internet Explorer, which maybe um, tells us something about the pace of innovation and change. I know you have your view on regulators, which I'm sure you'll share in a minute, which might might correlate with that. Uh, but fast forward now, mate, it's 20 years. I think it is. Jeez, mm-hmm. I'm getting old. Uh, fast forward 20 odd years, Google is now on the company's side, the Department of Justice side, I should say. And there are talks that businesses like Apple and Amazon, maybe even Facebook, are next on the DOJ's target list. And this is a it's a fascinating time because we haven't seen. I mean, Microsoft was forced to kind of unbundle Internet Explorer. We haven't seen big, though, corporate actions. I mean, that was reasonably minor in the scheme of things. Big big deal and, and fought hard by Microsoft and others. But you've got to go back to the kind of 80s um, to really find cases where business were forcibly split by regulators. And, and the big one in, in the US was um, AT&T, their version of Telstra, I suppose, back in the day that was forcibly split up into smaller components to try and put some competition back into into the telecommunications market. Now, that was voice calls way back in the day. I haven't seen much since, but there are rumblings now. There's increasing amounts of noise being made by different political parties, by different legal scholars, by consumer advocates to say Amazon should be broken up, Google should be broken up. Um, I don't think I'm saying about Apple, but certainly the, the App Store, um, the Epic Games, the Fortnite kind of palaver of a couple of months ago now where um, there was allegations that Apple had excess market power and was abusing that market power. This is an interesting time to be a tech company and potentially a tech investor. We've gone, you know, 20 years from 2000 when dot-com was kind of, you know, the dot-com boom and then crash. We're now at a, po- a point where, I won't tell you the end game because as, as I've just mentioned about Microsoft, you know, the browser wars weren't the end game at all, at least not at that point of the, in the story. But we are kind of at a point where, it feels like these businesses are all maturing or are mature or starting to mature around the same time. And regulators are starting to look at that and go, are these guys the new Walmart? Are they the new AT&T? Are they the new, you know, too big to be allowed to succeed in, in the current market environment? 
Oh wait, uh, <laughs> how long do you want this to be? <laughs> um, uh, okay, so let's start with the the Google one, right? Um, so first of all, I think um, I don't love Google, mm-hmm. but I'm you know, and and I'm not a f- fan of Google's. So, so the what I'm not a fan of is not that Google has market dominance, mm-hmm. right? That is not a problem in my view. What okay. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of Google's approach to data, right? And and data store, okay. and being the arbiter of data. So that's what I'm not not a fan of. Is this and, and that sounds different to me? Just just to be clear than the actual. So that there's not a lot of so data and privacy isn't the core of this particular. That's exactly, that's not the core. Right, so okay. so they're not addressing. Um, they're addressing a different problem now. Okay. Uh, let's sense. let's first talk about this one, and then uh, we can we can circle back to the Microsoft one. Okay. Um, so, if you read actually the filings. Mm. Uh, any sensible person reading the finals will actually start laughing. Right. Okay. So let me g- give you an example, and this is not the exact words, but let's um, <laughs> not libel anybody, by the way. Yeah, I'm not libeling anyone, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm just going to have some laugh here. So um, Google is very dominant in search. Yes. Um, it is extremely dominant. It is keeping competition, uh, putting competition. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's not allowing competition. Uh, but it, and and how do we prove that? Oh, it just gave Apple eight or ten billion dollars a year. Right. How's that market dominance? This is completely opposite. <laughs> Actually, you could flip the sentence yeah, yeah. and say, yeah. oh, our, Apple has market dominance, yeah. and that's why Apple is demanding $10 billion from Google per year right. so that it can be a default search engine. Right. So it's pretty bizarre, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so who is dominant here? Is it Apple? <laughs> is it Google? I don't know. Like, I mean, it's not at all yeah, clear right, to me, right? right? So. In fact, the fact that they're paying for traffic acquisition, uh, acquisition um, does it show dominance? Yes, so they're the number one search engine. Yeah. And <laughs> um, Apple doesn't love Google, Yeah. right? It could have said that we would make Bing the, our default search engine. Right, right, right. Why didn't it do it? So is it because of money mm, or is mm, it because mm. that they know <laughs> that Google is a better search engine and uh, we still allow people the freedom of choice to uh, to use another search engine if they want. Right. But we would not compromise our system. Gotcha, and hey, yeah. somebody wants to pay us money for being the default search engine, why won't we make some money off it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't know how these things are going to stack up in the court, but it really seems difficult yeah. to make the argument that, hey, this is the company that has 75% market share, still has to go and pay someone to mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. acquire their traffic. Yeah. Um, so, right, right. And, and it's not clear to me why. Which is both the combination of A, is it dominance, but also B, and maybe you're making this point or maybe you're not, maybe I'm extracting it from what you're saying, but it's also to some degree the, the idea that the source of that dominance, i.e. web traffic, is changing because Google Google needs to be on the app because the app isn't the web. If I if I jump on my browser and I type in google.com to search for something, that's one thing. If I'm using an app which has preloaded or a phone which has preloaded search default software, that's a whole different platform in and of itself, right? That that almost, you know, the the changes there, a bit like Internet Explorer and Netscape Navigator, you know, the the DOJ were solving the 1990s problem. Fast forward 20 years and and neither of those two players end up, ends up winning in this story. Yeah, so so like I mean, I, 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 what I'm saying is that they are dominant, yeah. but the way you're trying to prove dominance, yes, that's right. is is not useful in my view yes, because yes, yes. I mean, you know, dominant players don't, you know, dominant players crush other people and yeah, say, yeah. well, you know, I wouldn't allow you, I wouldn't pay you to right, be right, a right. default or whatever they are actually paying, right? So, uh, so there's that. Now, the, in in the. I think the flow-on effects of that are mm-hmm. undeniable, mm-hmm. right? So the flow-on effect is if you're dominant in search, then you can control uh, how your search algorithms work, and mm-hmm. that in turn has impact on on other things. I think what um, 
often um, regulators miss, because I think regulators by default are mm. not that imaginative, <laughs> is, um, yeah. is that the innovation typically does not come from yeah. what innovation of something new does not really come from those platforms that exist, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's quite likely that the search in its current form is going to get um, mm. disrupted by something completely different from search, right? So in other words, enabling... Uh, competition in search mm-hmm. is really should not be the answer. I think the answer should be to enable competition overall to enable innovation, right. but it doesn't necessarily mean this ex- exactly like they were tackling the wrong problem when it came to um, the Windows environment, right? Yeah, right I mean, right, right. did it really matter whether it was Netflix or Mozilla or whatever else or Netscape mm-hmm. or Mozilla or whatever else versus mm-hmm. Internet Explorer? It did not, right? Yeah. Because at that time, people thought that that the browser yeah, right. was the right. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, was pre-smartphone, pre whatever else, right? No, but I mean the the very thought that yeah. the browser was the platform through which you're going to do tra- uh, you're oh, going to make okay. money. Okay. Why would you think that? Yeah. Because okay. the browser is a is a door yeah. that opens you to this world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That world is where the opportunity was. Right. So when you weren't ever paying for the browsers themselves, anyway, there was no sense. That yeah. There was. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's never been a commercial case. For, I mean, maybe if you're if you're the default search provider on the browser, there's like a second order impact. Maybe, maybe in some future world, Bing is massive because everyone uses Internet Explorer. But people aren't that silly. Yeah, like, <laughs> and, and I think like you can make arguments about all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you could make an argument that app stores are dominant, yeah. right? Um, but has that stopped innovation? Yeah. So my my threshold really is to ask whether or not there is innovation or not, right? right I mean, right. the App Store has enabled the Ubers, the Lyfts, the Airbnbs, mm. and so on, right? Now, whether or not they want a part of that transaction and a cost of that transaction flow, that's a matter between those people and they can sort it out, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, in many ways, the, the platform enables something and if that something is not available, then people will get pissed off. And if yep. they get pissed yep. off, then they will, you know, create noise, right? It's yep. um, So I, I don't know what this, uh, the salts... Um, mm. Um, and it, in in my view, I think it does not address the real issues, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. you want to you want to control market power, but mm-hmm. uh, this almost seems to be going about uh, the wrong way. But um, yeah. anyways, this is going to. I, I, I largely agree with you. I think there is there is some. If if we had if we had two Australian banks making super normal profits, I think you and I would probably say there needs to be more competition in the banking space, and we need to work out a way that banks can't take too much money off the table. And I, I can, I'm a Google shareholder, you're an Apple shareholder, um, so I have as much, maybe less to lose than you do. Maybe Apple makes more money from the App Store, but broadly speaking, I, I do wonder whether the App Store is so closely tied to the operating system, so closely tied to the phones. Um, again, not Apple, not, not Google, but both. And as a Google shareholder, I'm you know absolutely saying this is a, as hopefully as an independent kind of observer, but I do wonder whether two dominant App Stores that get to charge a percentage for, of, of revenue that seems higher than would be the case elsewhere again are they creating the value absolutely banks could say well without us you can't you know transact and so we're we're, we're you know providing a service you gotta pay us all 30 percent of your transaction you know revenue that goes through the banks to make money we'll be like no nah, you know what that doesn't seem like it's a reasonable way to go it's probably a bad, bad analogy but i think there is some sense that it's worth asking the question of is a 30 percent clip sufficiently competitive um, compared to either what it might be or with a third OS or the retail world or the, the physical world or something else. Just to kind of work out, you know, I mean, that's the AT&T question, right? That is the, the you know, the, the, how, how much value do you allow one, com- one company to capture and at what point does that suggest 
a lack of competition versus, as you say, an enabling of a whole ecosystem. And I think you're right, by the way. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with your point that it absolutely allows the Uber. I mean, Uber doesn't exist without the app stores, right? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a zero. But I do wonder how we think about not, not maybe not should we regulate, shouldn't we? Should we should we break it up, shouldn't we? They're probably the the, the, the end point questions or the end point answers, sorry. The question to me is how do we think clear, cleverly about how much value is created and how much of that value should should go to a two horse race, you know, with not a lot of super overlapping competition, um, as opposed to trying to find the right price or the right, you know, ticket size, the, the right amount of revenue that, that a, a dominant um, gatekeeper should be allowed to collect on the way through. Yeah, so like you know, I'm pretty ambivalent on that, largely because I think what's um, most. So here's the thing, right? If you want to have good global services, mm. you will not have multiple players. Mm. There can't be multiple players, mm. right? Expecting multiple players, basically, nobody's going to develop. No, no developer is going to develop apps for multiple platforms. Right, right. It just doesn't work. Well, maybe, maybe multiple, but not like, you know, maybe two or three, but not 10 or 15, right? Well, it's, it's not going to... You know, even two people don't do it today, right? I mean, you know, people who are going to develop first for the app, uh, the Apple's app store, and then if they feel like they're going to develop for, you know, it, it's economics yeah. that, that yeah, it takes, yeah. right? Totally. And hey, you can design a free app and monetize your uh, audience or whatever you're doing in a different way, and nobody's going to charge you anything, yeah. right? So, uh, and then this this idea that mm. um, Apple makes a ton of money, or you know, Google, actually, mm. Apple does not make a ton of money mm. from the App Store. So, the, the, I think those are fringe. Those are, those are like fringe discussions, in my view, that right. just don't matter because. I mean, I, I think the the flip side that we don't we don't we don't realize is we can go back the 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 alternative could be a world full of malware or yeah. world full of a, you know disruptive apps that are taking control of your phones that are stealing mm-hmm. your data yeah. right who's going to ensure that right so you need somebody to be you know um, the guardian for doing that and I think you yeah. want actually concentration here uh, you know two is probably maybe three at most is what you can for people to you know developers don't have free time to develop X number <laughs> of apps for yeah. a, you know X type of different uh, environments and then keep up and then make sure that it is maintained so I you know uh, I don't have a problem with the distribution model um, as such and I think it's 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 not harming people in any way right yeah. and yeah. I think the the issue might be that the, here's another way to think about it. I think that most of the time the complaints come. So here, I'll give an example. Spotify would come and say, "Oh, I can't do this X, Y, and Z." To that, my answer is: if you are selling a commodity solution called music streaming, which is basically buying somebody else's music and then putting it on the pipe, you are a marginal business to start off. Go start something else. <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah. it's like you know. Yeah. In my mind, the marginal business is the one that complains. The non-marginal business would have no problems because sure. they would figure out something else to do. Sure, sure, right. Sure. So um, I, think, I think I think that's right. I think I think I, I'm not I'm not I don't have a dog in this fight in terms of Spotify versus Apple or Google versus Epic. Games well, no, I don't have a do- dog in the fight. It's more either, a question of as a, as a as a consumer and as a as a producer. And frankly, if I put the regulator hat on for a second. How much should should they be there? Yes. Is it does it keep out my way? Yes. I'm not suggesting there's no benefit to the current system. It's more a question of given the current system, is it the most appropriate level of 
competition and and charging fees, call it what you want, relative to a better solution. Not 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 a. So, not so a I just answered that question for you, right? I don't have a dog in the fight. All I'm answering right. for you is that <laughs> currently there is so much competition yeah. that Spotify can't survive because it has no ecosystem. Right. So. But my I point is that Apple and Google both charge thirty percent, right? At some at no, some no, point, no, if we so, had two so, banks so, who no, charge so, the same thing, no, no, no. I think you, I think I think here here is where you're mistaken, right? So let's take the issue with uh, Spotify. Yep. Right. You subscribe to music. You yep. can take Android music. You can take Apple music. You can take Amazon music. Sure. Right. You can take Pandora. Sure. You can take X Y Z. Yep. Right. When you're selling a commodity solution, mm-hmm. you're not going to make much money on it. Right. But, I, but I, I take your point, but I don't care about Spotify in particular. Right. I, I, think you, I think we need to argue the, 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 the but, broad, but the problems are, the problems are the often... ecosystem, not just the Spotify. You no, know, no, but that's exactly where the, these are the complainants. Right. The complaints are coming from okay, these but, people. But let's assume they don't complain. The DOJ's question is still, given there are two play, only two OS players with apps, app stores, and given those two players are charging what in any other circumstance would be a extortionate proportion of revenue so you know you couldn't you couldn't if you're if you're a retail land if you're westfield you can't charge 30 percent of rent uh if you're you know a vending machine player you can't charge 30 percent of, of the no no no, no. so here's here's where i think you're, you're mistaken right completely so the retailer mm-hmm. um unlike here make i guess when you know the government has said that you don't have to pay rent mm. right you have to realize that uh, unlike a typical mall mm. where everybody's paying a rent mm-hmm. everybody's actually not paying a rent here Right, so when Google is running its Google Play Store, mm. if you're free, yep. Google gets zero. Yeah, sure. Right, so that you know, like I mean, it's a question of whether it's fifteen or thirty, but you know, hey, but that, but that is, I think that is the question. That, that's but my I point. think regulators have no business trying to figure that out because they have no clue what to do. I mean, they would have never thought that you can actually have a free ecosystem of hundreds and thousands of apps which are free. Like, I mean, make your business something else other than transacting in digital currency, and you're fine. Okay, but if if we had if we had banks in Australia who said savings accounts are free, checks are free, but if you're on a home loan, you're going to have to pay me thirty percent. We would, and they said you can you can use you can use the free savings accounts. That's fine, but if you don't want to borrow by home, don't borrow by home. That's fine. It's not a problem. There's only two banks. You've got to pay thirty percent to both. I think I think we would all agree that was a system that no, no, that competition here, would enhance or that <laughs> government intervention would improve relative to. And that, I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying they shouldn't be able to charge anything. Or no, that, I think again, I'm not saying thirty percent is wrong. No, so I don't think, broadly speaking, the question is, you know, what. what a regulator slash system overview should say: Do these circumstances feel like they are an appropriate one for the 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 market that we have and the market power that's being used? Not abused necessarily, just used. You know, is it is it is that seem like a reasonable competitive solution in this marketplace? No. So I think that's why again you're wrong. <laughs> and I'm going to use say wrong pretty strongly because it's not the the analogy just doesn't work, right? It's not that the consumer is being hurt. Right, the consumer still is able to get, you know, five dollars music streaming. Mm-hmm. Right, the thirty percent or whatever it is is being paid by the business. Sure, to, that, that gets reflected in prices. I mean, it, yeah, but it must I mean, but, but that has been that has been. I think that the software distribution cost or the cost of applications is not exorbitant. It is, um, you know, there's plenty of competition. There's plenty of choice. So how much are we too much? 50%, 90%? I don't know. Like, But I think the current system just works. Like, I mean, you know, there's no problem with the current system. Sure, you want to tweak it 15%. Here's the thing. It does not make a bottom line difference, whether it is 15% or mm. 30%, mm. to either Apple or Google. It actually yeah. does not make any difference. But my, my point is only right. that the fact it could be either, and the fact you're open to that, is, is, the, is what's yeah, but worth it is not, the I think conversation. It's, yeah, but it's not... Like, the regulators are the people who have no clue how to deal with this they would as i said they would have never figured out that you could actually have free services 
Right. I don't give regulators that much credit. Maybe you do, but I, I think <laughs> regulators are, you know, <laughs> regulators do dumb things. <laughs> They're basically known for doing dumb things. Um, you know, again, which in which world do you get 90% of your apps are free? 90% of the services that you get are free. What's the problem? You want to pay, you pay. Let's, let's move on. It's like, you know, what is it? It's, as I said, the complainants here are basically all about, can I get more money in my pocket? Mm. It's not about the end consumer. And the complainants are always those businesses that are not innovative enough. I think that's where the problem is. Go innovate is what I say. Just go build a better business. <laughs> Don't complain. I hate complainers. <laughs> we will see. We will see. We might leave it there, mate. I've got a quick question before we finish off and then we will end for today. Uh, it, well, because while we're in the space of innovation, while we're in the space of banks, we talked about both of those today. A question, a quick question we came through from Scott, not, not me, another Scott. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. Long time listener. Appreciate the education entertainment you both provide. Well, hopefully we've done that today. You both make your opinions on traditional banks quite clear. We've also done that today. But then Scott asks, do you have a view on the neobanks, such as Wiser, W-I-Z-R, I've got to say, mate, that was a new name for me, who appear to be increasing market share in, he says, EO-like multiples, so extreme opportunities, your service, EO-like multiples. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll reset this. Do you have a, a view on neobanks, such as Wiser, who appear to be increasing market share quickly, uh, have a focus on financial wellness and don't have the same residential property exposure or bias? Love to hear your thoughts, Doc and Scott. So in this case, you know, the question is, we have, we have been, um, we have given our views on, on banks. You're a little more negative than I am, but neither of us are buying banks anytime soon um, for, for a whole lot of reasons, including their exposure to debt. Um, also, the, the question of, is there enough just sheer growth in, in the business itself? Even if you even if you said, I don't think you'd believe this, I, I'm a bit sanguine on it. Even if you said there's no crash coming, but where does the growth come from? In either of those scenarios, or you believe there's a crash, it's kind of like heads I, heads I lose a lot, tails I lose a little bit. It's not a great, not a great scenario. Do the neobanks may interest you from, from a from an investment perspective, given they don't have those potential downsides, given they're disruptors who have, you know, all the market in front of them and no real legacy businesses or issues. Um, harder for the Commonwealth Bank to double in size, but easy for a neobank to grow tenfold and still not even appear on Combank's radar, quite frankly. Small companies, as you invest in with extreme opportunities, are the place to make meaningful amounts of money if you can find the right ones and the ones that are going to go well. Have you looked at neobanks? Do you have a view? Have you have you kind of formed a sense of when and why you might invest in them? Uh, so I haven't looked in, in much detail to know. So, I mean, yes, it's true. They're small. They can take some share from the big ones and they can grow. Um, you know, banking as a whole, um, traditional banking is a, it's mm. a difficult business, right? I mean, you know, you have to borrow money. So basically, it's a leveraged business where you're, you know, mm. trying to make um, some money off a lot of leverage. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's which is great when it works and when it doesn't. It's yeah. Painful, right? So, so, and you know, I don't know. I haven't looked at it, mm. looked at any carefully to actually have a view. Um, I, I like the fact that you know, new new mm. new banks are trying different things, which yeah. is good. But I don't have a view. Yeah, I think I think Scott, I, I would I would avoid giving a view on them, in part because I think we tend to a little bit like we talk about tech as if it's one thing, right? I think neobanks we talk about as one thing. Um, neobanks that I've seen, or at least those those called neobanks, do everything from payday loans through to peer peer to peer lending, through to deposit services, through to everything else. Um, and I think that's where you want to be a little bit careful. You know, all uh, to be fair, the, the banking sector, the, the, the non neobanks, the traditional banks, are largely the same thing. Um, they're, they're big, they're old and slow. They tend to do, you know, deposit supported and, and money market supported uh, funding of home loans and business loans, right? So they're kind of not exactly much of a much, but you can kind of throw a reasonably small blanket over all of them. 
when it comes to the neobanks, because they are new, because they are different, because they are small, because they, in some cases, are focused in very, very different areas, you want to be really careful of what you're buying, what they do. Now, again, I have no view on Wiser directly or others, um, but I, what I would say is just be a little bit mindful that um, you know it's not just a small, nimble, new version of the existing banks, and so we can use the same frameworks. Um, I just look up Wiser, for example, and literally the Wikipedia description says um, it's a non-bank lender offering consumer lending services. Uh, it was called Direct Money. Um, originally, now it's now it does what it does. Now you know, borrowing five or fifty grand, that to me doesn't sound like a neobank as much as it sounds like a, a you know a non-bank lender um, that that may or may not have you know a different funding cost. I haven't looked into it anywhere near deeply enough. What I would say though is, to some degree, if if you're kind of just a you know a white labelled relender, that's great. They knock yourself out. I wouldn't say that's a neobank in the same way as, uh, for example, Square that Doc mentioned earlier in the in the in the chat, which is not exactly even. Offering the same service as a traditional bank, but it's getting a lot closer. I, I don't know, Doctor. You, uh, uh, you know, a question without notice on say Square. That to me sounds like a proper neo bank as opposed to a, a new disruptive lender who wants to be called a neo bank because it's kind of a cool term, and I might get some. I might get some nice halo effects from it. Yeah, like so Square is a much significantly bigger business. Like, and, yeah. you know, like Square probably is as big as one of the Australian banks now. It's amazing, uh, eh? but but. It's it's again like I mean you have to start somewhere right yeah, I mean yeah. so I, I I don't know like I mean I don't think it's bad in the moment I'm just, I'm yeah. just saying I wouldn't necessarily just be I'm just careful of the label I think when you start to say it's a neo bank it conjures up those those ideas in people's heads of like oh I know what it is I know what it does I can buy shares in it because it's a neo bank all I would say is yeah I neo banks are all different yeah. to each other in a far greater way than yeah the big four banks are the same bank <laughs> really honestly right they'll they'll yeah. hate me saying that but it's true um, the neo banks are all really, really different from each other, or potentially really different from each other. You've got to be really careful what you're buying. Yeah, and, and again, you know, are, are, are they, you know, just lending? Are they doing, you know, F-post gathering? You yeah. know, are, are they uh, are they linking customers to, you know, buyers and sellers? What, what is yeah. the type of banking they're yeah. doing? It's yeah. all important, yeah. What I will say, man, I have, a, I have a, really quick, a really quick view on this. I see, to some degree, the neo banks as potentially being, doing to grow, doing to banks what, what others have done to grocery. So if you think about, and this is a long analogy, but stick with me, not, not, not long, it's just different. Aldi, as a retailer, had a very specific way of saying, we're going to have a really small range, they're going to be really cheap, and we're going to focus on stuff we do really, really well. And they've carved out a really nice niche for themselves in Australia. Costco have been in the US for years, but have come to Australia and said, we do the opposite. We do you know, really, really, really large purchases of really large quantities, you know, 144 rolls of toilet paper or you know, five kilos of mm. know, peanut butter. Um, very different, right? And what it, I think what what we've been I'll say I'll say blessed with is probably too hard term. The great thing about the Coles and Woolly supermarkets is you get everything there. They're all reasonably priced. You get everything in the one shop. It's kind of easy and simple. And they've done a great job of being everything to everybody, but not anything in particular really really well. So they kind of they do everything reasonably well. Aldi have said we're going to do a few things incredibly well. Costco have said we're going to do a few different things incredibly well. And that starts to undermine Woolies and Coles themselves, right? Because you can't say, well, we're going to sell nappies and peanut butter and toilet paper and grog and, you know, baked goods and, and cold meats. And they're going to be reasonably priced. You'll come and get them all. They'll kind of cross-subsidize each other. We can, you know, baby food's always cheap because it drags people in. You'll pay a bit more for your, I don't know, baked beans or something else. That that model of, of being something to everybody is a really convenient model for most people. But... The, the new players have really disrupted that meaningfully, right? They've had to drop their prices, introduce private labels. It changed the whole dynamic of supermarkets. I think in banking, I, I, if I was a bank shareholder, that's what I'd be worried about is, is somebody looking around at the banking system and saying, hang on, they make 
X percent of their profits from these two things. I'm only going to do those two things. I don't have to cross-subsidize a branch network. I don't have to cross-subsidize deposit accounts, which they lose money on. And we don't like paying fees on deposit accounts, but let's be honest, they make no money on deposit accounts. It costs the money to provide. They're happy to make money on mortgages and credit cards. And if you've got another company that says, I'll do the credit cards, someone says, I'll do the loans, and the banks are stuck with deposit products and branches, it, you know, the model starts to break down really, really fast. Yeah, but I mean, on the other hand, the deposit is also enabling them to provide those loans, right? Totally. I mean, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, the deposit product is important from yes, that point of yes, view. Yes. It, you know, and it's actually even better if you can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sucker someone up to deposit their money for five years, <laughs> yeah, right? right. A guaranteed five oh, years man, of fun. deposit for, yeah, that's right. Yeah, for nothing. So, um, yeah, like, um, again, like, it's probably too early. The other thing I'll, I'd caution is mm. if, if a company is too small, especially a banking company that's too small, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. um, it could vanish and yeah. nobody would notice kind of thing. Yeah, be careful. Huh? Yeah, you should be careful, a little bit careful. So if you're not looking for banks, but you are looking for great small cap stocks, you should join Doc's service, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. You can go to fool.com.au and slash EO podcast. I almost screwed that up, so let me go again. Fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. I was thinking of what I was going to say next, which was, and you can join up to join Doc and Kevin. Um, and Kevin's got a, he's a new father. So congratulations, Kevin. We should say that just for fun. I won't give away too many more details because Kevin may not want me to share them, but he's a new dad for the first time. So congratulations, mate, and to your, to your lovely wife as well. Um, go to EO podcast. Doc and Kevin do a fantastic job there of finding you not the neobanks necessarily, although if there is a great neobank that's worthy of investment, they will definitely recommend it there. In the meantime, they are looking around the market trying to find the ones that have better return potential, potentially less risk as well than those banks, a little more risk than the average bear, but hopefully a lot more return. That's certainly the success they've had so far. And as I'm saying, as I like to say, and as you already know, cheap out a cup of coffee a week. What are you waiting for? Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and join Doc. Now we're going to have- I was going to quickly say, it's oh, not please. cheap. Inexpensive. Oh, I keep saying that. I've been told. I've been told by a member uh, <laughs> that we should not call it cheap. No, it's not cheap. It's inexpensive. It's not cheap. It's inexpensive. <laughs> Try it out. It's so. It, it's so bloody inexpensive. You honestly. I. I. I it's hard to say that actually. <laughs> I can't say. I can't say you can't lose because I guess you can always buy a bad pick or something and whatever. But man, if you've got a portfolio that's even four figures, and you can't justify. A stupidly cheap, stupidly inexpensive price. Let me be clear. Uh, to, to try Doc's service at EO, I, I don't know. I can't help you. All right. So go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Yes, it's an ad, but it's also completely genuine. It drives me nuts that I can't get more people to come and join Doc or, or us at Share Advisor, but certainly Doc and Kevin at, at EO just to give it a go because just, you know, you spend more than that on a, on, a, on a night out or a pair of jeans and they're not going to, they're not going to build your wealth, put it that way. All right. Before we go, mate, should we do a podcast mailbag on Sunday? Is that um, secret anymore? A special episode? Special. 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 So if you do want to take part, hit us up on the socials. Let me go through them really, really quickly. Info at fool.com.au for those who prefer email. You can hit us up on the Twitters. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. And let me double up here. If you're on Twitter or Instagram, you can get me at TMF Scott P and The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. And if you're on the book, the Facebook, the Book of Faces, Go to The Motley Fool Australia or Scott Phillips Money. That's it, mate. We're done. We will be back Sunday. But before that, make sure you don't miss our Sunday mailbag episode by subscribing to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or of course, Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating. Leave us a review. A quick note here, mate. We had a listener during the week send me someone, 
uh, you know I talk about tattooing on your body uh-huh. I was I, I saw the I saw the image come up and I thought oh god tell me no one's put a Motley Fool on there they haven't put the Motley Fool on their body <laughs> they've done something you would like much more okay they literally tattooed S3 XY and the Tesla symbol on they, the underside of their forearm they have done a very good job <laughs> What can the, I Tesla, say? the Tesla models, Model S, Model Three, Model X, and Model Y, and a little Tesla symbol for their for the rest of their lives. So that is that is love. That is that is brand love, and I thought you'd appreciate that. In the meantime, don't do that. Uh, well, do it if you want to, but I'm not going to suggest it. Instead of that, please give us a rating, leave us a review, please tell your friends. If you're enjoying the podcast, we figure they will too. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness and some marketing straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with a surprise, no, not surprise, a special (laughs) mailbag edition. See you then. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.